You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Hawkins filling in for our regular mouthpiece, Adam Griffin, and I'm here with the main man MC handler, Matt Chandler. On today's episode, we're going to be having a conversation with Mark Sayers about his new book, Strange Days. In Strange Days, he discusses the chaos of our cultural moment and how to respond as Christians. We've got Mark Sayers on the show today. Mark is an author, cultural commentator, and the senior leader of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. His books include The Trouble with Paris, The Vertical Self, The Road Trip That Changed the World, Facing Leviathan, Disappearing Church, and his latest, Strange Days, which we'll be discussing today. Mark is married to his wife, Trudy, and they have a daughter, Grace, and twin boys, Billy and Hudson. Welcome to the show, Mark. Good to be here. Thank you. Mark, I'd love to just uh, start by asking what led you to write Strange Days, uh, and then maybe just give us a flyover um, of the premise of the book. Yeah, well, actually, I um, almost did, did not want to write Strange Days. I wanted to have a little uh, break. Um, I belted out a few books in a row, but uh, just was continually uh, asked by people uh, in light of so many global events, um, you know, has the world gone mad? And so I just felt like this question kept coming up and people were looking for, I guess, a sort of clear and concise overview of all the different, you know, huge changes that we're seeing in our world at the moment. Um, so Strange Days is really an attempt to look at all the different sort of tensions in the world from politics and culture, globalization, and, and look at it from a biblical framework. Yeah, and, and I just have to say, I've, I've been reading the book recently and um, it's, it's honestly... It's helped me tremendously as I look in the world and look in our, you know, current cultural moment. Um, it, it we are living in strange days, right? And and you just you get this sense, at least at least with the twenty four hour news cycle, that things are as bad as they've ever been, right? And it's easy to sort of, I mean, from my perspective, it's easy to slip into this this feeling that really there's nothing. There's really no foundation tying this whole thing together, you know, um, and that and that really the, maybe maybe it makes more sense to think of the world as absurd, you know, just thinking about how how awful uh, some of the things that are happening, just like with global terrorism and, and many other things that you you sort of mention in the book. But but then you just do a great job of sort of correcting our lenses on that. So I'd love to just just ask you this, you know, is our situation truly unique? Um haven't we haven't we moved in and out of times of chaos throughout hi- history, and why might that be helpful to consider? Yeah, no, great question. I think I think it feels um, chaotic at the moment. And um, just last night, I was watching just going to bed at the attack on the Iranian parliament after all these tensions in the Gulf, and it's it's honestly like news that was twenty four hours ago seems like a lifetime ago yeah. now, and. So there's this sense that things are ramping up and becoming more chaotic. But when you read history, uh, you know, history has always been very chaotic. I think one of the things, though, that clouds it for us is the fact that from 19, uh, about 1989 till, I reckon, you know, 10 years into this new century, there was this sense that the world had found this place of peace, particularly with the fall of communism. So the 9th of November, when the Berlin Wall fell, and uh, it looked like this co- the Cold War was over, and there was a lot of mythology that I think we bought around that. We bought this idea that uh, history had come to an end, and we were now entering into this new period of global 
sort of partnership and peace. And consumerism grew in that time. Um, people believed the economy would just keep going in you know, leaps and bounds. So it's more that we bought a mythology that the world was now heading to this and progressing to this, this, this sort of you know, utopian place in a way. And so I think it's been the shocks of the last sort of, you know, probably maybe since the global financial crisis, have been more shocks that we've returned to how things always were. Uh, things have always been chaotic. But I do think the way that we experience it, particularly through the 24-hour news cycle, I think the internet and globalisation is also creating a unique dynamic in the world at the moment. How much, Mark, do you think that um, a lack of knowledge or maybe even revisionist history around history itself has kind of played into this moment? Because it's been my experience that that mo- there, there's a few of us who are nerds who love history, who love to dive into kind of uh, details or moments in history or, or these um, periods of history. And yet, uh, by and large, it seems like for whatever reason, the educational system, there's been a pretty big breakdown in an understanding of history and how it shaped the present. How much do you think that's playing into uh, some of the absurdity of this moment? I think hugely. I mean, the the life script that particularly Western people have been given in my country, Australia, in the United States, is an individual life script where basically we push everything through an individual lens where we're disconnected from the past, we can reinvent ourselves, we can create an identity and that's all well and good to sort of lead this life where I'm going and doing what I want to do and getting the career I want and vacationing where I want and consuming what I want. But history is all about, so world affairs is about history, which is about identities and place and how this fits in all this, you know, fabric of time throughout the different ages. And so I think what's happening is our, our life script that we've been given by the West is actually in the face of history and current events sort of coming under tremendous pressure. So I think you're 100% right. I think we're not told to understand um, where we've come from. We're not really equipped to understand where we're going. So I think that that individual in-the-moment lens where we just live in the moment um, yeah, is, is falling apart. Yeah, uh, this this is really great. So um, in the book, you talk a lot about that lens and individualism, and you use these concepts of place and non-place. Could you expand a little bit on what you mean by that? Yeah, well, um, it's a concept from a, a French uh, sociologist called Marc Auger, and he talks about that throughout history, people have always had a sense of place. So a place is, you know, I was born in a particular place, and I was born into a group of relationships. Um, and the story of that place defines me. And there's an, there's an element there where it limits your sense of personal freedom, but then also it provides tremendous meaning. So throughout most of history, people have never asked the question, who am I, or had to go on a personal journey to discover themselves, because all of that was self-evident through an understanding of place. And that could be a nation, it could be a village, and Auger says that in the sort of contemporary world, this notion of the non-place has crept, it crept up. I was trying to explain to my wife the other day an incident I'd seen with this family and they had a, a, a badly disabled son and, and there was this moment where they were caring for him and I told my wife this story and she said, oh, where was that? And I stopped and I couldn't remember because it was an airport. Now, I can remember the airport food court. I can see the image in my mind. But I can't remember if that was in Europe, the Middle East, the United States, Australia. I actually can't remember where it is. And that's the essence of a non-place. 
malls are non-places, uh, airports are like non-places, increasingly coffee shops are like non-places. It's, it's a place where you're disconnected from a story, you're disconnected from outside place, and really no one tells you who you are. You can invent who you are. And I think what happened, particularly from 1989 till, till recently and still happening, is that we imagine the world was becoming a non-place where we could just travel and the world was our oyster, but very much there's this tension now between people who are fighting for that concept of place, whether it's a terrorist ideology or a political ideology or a nationalist ideology, and then the proponents of globalisation in many ways, well, some proponents of globalisation almost describe the world would be better when it becomes a non-place. Yeah. Um, Mark, I've I, I thought about this a lot reading reading your book and, e, and even what you just described, these the strip mall, the, um, the airport, uh, uh, the, these places that almost lack a cultural identity and, and not to, to denigrate it too much, but really the context in which we find ourselves doing ministry here, uh, me particularly, is in the suburbs and those kind of can, in a real way, can capture uh, that idea of non-place pretty well. And I've, I've, I've wondered, and I, I wonder what you, your thoughts were on this, but um, I've wondered if this, this feeling of non-place actually fuels or is fed by uh, 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 the 24-hour news cycle. Or let me put that a different way. Maybe because people live in this feeling of non-place, they drift towards sensational things to find meaning. I, I, I think about how much uh, the people that we minister to um, are really even in our cultural moment, how much people seem to be obsessed with uh, real problems in the world, but real problems in the world that will statistically never touch their lives. And they sort of obsess about those and it leaves them ill prepared to actually deal with the problems they're going to face. So let me, let me kind of put flesh on that. You know, um, there's lots of people uh, who uh, live in like a real fear of home invasion, of terrorism, of these kind of sensationalistic stories that make the news cycle. But when you actually and, – and they'll, they'll spend time sort of preparing how to defend from these things, right? But when you look at it, they're so much more likely to face something like a car wreck or to get sick or to lose a family member, or to do these kind of things, and they're ill-prepared to actually face those tragedies because they've spent so much time sort of facing the sensational. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's you're definitely you know, onto it. it. It's the sense that the sort of actual lived life that, say, 21st century, um, and whether it's suburban life, it's, it's interesting as I travel around, um, I tend to get asked to speak in sort of context where it's quite progressive and, and, and preaching those elements. And I'm noticing that you go around the world and even the sort of you know, urban, gentrified neighborhoods are all seeming the same now. So there's this sense that we have this very uniformed culture, which is actually quite dull. Uh, it's download the latest Netflix series. It's, you know, here's your well-crafted hipster coffee. Uh, it's, it's all very same-ish. Yeah. And there's this Lived reality, though, that if you look at a, a bus stop of people, if you see people sitting in a coffee shop, everyone's just got their phones out, and they're just yes. completely entranced with their phones. And this exposure to the world where our phones bring us closer to our friends and, and our loved ones, but then also they bring the world closer. Um, so just, just that, that sense that because of the real 
lived nature seemingly of a terrorist attack. Our humans, we're very much wired for stories, I think. And so when we see the girl who's explaining, you know, what it was like to be on the London Bridge, you know, facing a, you know, ISIS-inspired guy with a knife, we're here as humans, and that story feels very real to us, where the statistics of a car wreck or the statistics of falling off a, a ladder in, in your backyard, also they're much more, you know, likely to happen to us. Uh, they don't feel as real. So there's almost this two lived realities going on. There's the walking around what we experience with our bodies, mundane, domestic reality, which is our whole life, really. And then there's this almost now this mental, digital landscape in which we live. But that mental, digital landscape is what's driving, I think it's almost spiritually, it's driving us culturally at the moment. So this tremendous, I think, grasping for, particularly in the realm of politics, you know, which I think now is being divided between no longer left and right as much as globalism and nationalism. Behind that is really a sense of trying to find meaning in a world which is reduced meaning to the good life is buying the next car or buying that you know, consumer item. Hey, Mark, I, first of all, I want to just encourage you in any way to just keep writing uh, as someone who has been deeply impacted specifically by um, f- um, the vertical self and facing Leviathan. I think both, those, both of those books came at a time in my own life. Um, where where some significant changes uh, were made to my life because of uh, the the way you wrote and what you wrote. So I just want to uh, just say on the podcast, brother, keep as as much as the spirit will just free you up to to do these things, please, because it does make a difference and is making a difference. So I want to dive back into some things in um, strange days. Um, what, one of the things that that um, in, in assessing the chaos of our culture, you, you discuss is the need for Christians to understand the biblical reality that there's a war raging around us. And so uh, th- there's a couple of things I would like for you to talk about uh, around that idea. One, why that's essential that we don't miss that reality. And then again, how how do we go about growing in that understanding? Um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting part. Um, I think it's in the screw tape letters where C.S. Lewis is writing um, and he's, Britain's in the midst of a war, which is you know, incomparable what Britain would have been going through the blitz compared to, say, terrorist attacks that we're currently uh, engaged in. Uh, and London was being bombed, and he makes this comment like, he says something like, don't think about the war too much. And I read that, and I'm thinking, goodness me, like how, you know, it's easy to say, you know, you've got German bombs raining on your city night after night, you're going down into air raid shelters, and I thought, what a fascinating statement. And I think what C.S. Lewis is getting at there is, yes, the war was a big thing, just as issues in our world are a, a huge things today, but the real story of the world is that spiritual story. Um, oh, it's so good. what is driving history, uh, that God has a plan, and his plan is the salvation plan, which he's always been intent on throughout history, and we see his finger prints throughout history as he's, he's moved the world towards his purposes. And secondly, the other side of that is that then there's a spiritual dynamic where we're engaged in a spiritual war, and we're engaged in a spiritual war where as fallen humans, uh, there are people in the world where, you know, when we are fallen, we don't see the world correctly. Uh, we, we have a mis view of the world, if that makes sense. And so understanding that we as humans have a propensity to be fallen, that 
how we may be even looking at a particular issue on Facebook, engaging with someone, we as Christians need to say, hang on, where's my flesh in this? Um, am I thinking by the Spirit? Paul gives this lens of flesh and spirit, which you know, has been really helpful for me to, to understand my own life and to understand discipleship um, in that sense of, instead of saying, I'm looking at this political issue, asking the question of, am I looking at this through the, the lens of the spirit or the flesh? And I'm finding that a really interesting paradigm to, to re-engage, which I think is totally biblical. Yeah, it's like I've, I've tried even recently, it, it appears that with the death of, en, of enchantment, the death of magic, the death of, it, that, that even Christianity has become this really kind of super cerebral, which praise God for the intellect, and I never want to say anything disparaging about uh, knowing deeply the Word of God, and knowing, but, but there seems to be uh, a Christianity that lacks spiritual authority, spiritual insight, and it's almost an unspirit. Like I've just been to some places where we're the gathered body of Christ, and it's just terribly unspiritual. How do you think that we can move back in the direction of uh, of being a more deeply spiritual people with spiritual insights and spiritual answers? Yeah, I think I think number one is regaining that true sense of I think what Paul was was you know encouraging the the sort of you know churches that are just coming up in the light of Jesus' resurrection and what he'd done around that sense of seeing the world through a very different paradigm. We're constantly tempted by a world which is complex, so it's filled with all kinds of talking heads. We live in an opinionocracy, I call it, where everyone's opinion, from the person you may see on that cable news channel to the mummy blogger to your friends on Facebook, all have an opinion. And actually choosing that now, to listen to those opinions, we're giving those things authority. Now, there can be wisdom sometimes in those things, but really, all authority lives with Christ. So how are we going to look at all these things through you know, a Christian matrix? And I think what you realize, what I've realized, is that the Spirit is given, and the Spirit is alive and active, and the Spirit is you know, talking now through Scripture, through through. You know, his work in the world, and to see that we're actually given a guide and a comforter, for me, is this really encouraging aspect of New Testament, you know, the New Testament, which I think that is 100% true, that, that, that so many churches don't have that. We've just looked at this cerebrally. The second thing I've realized is that underneath the incredible newscast that we get, you know, and commentary and digital landscape, that really, I think, one of the things was interesting about the last few years is that pundits got Brexit wrong, pundits got the uh, Trump presidency wrong, and part of the reason that happened was that so much of our story is actually being told by a very small group of people, a small group of people who have become, in a multicultural society, distant from other voices. And one of the things that I've just appreciated lately is that away from that story, in so many Western cities, there's this incredible other side of globalization where God is bringing people from all over the world. Near, near me here in the, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, uh, you know, you've got Indian churches, you've got uh, Sudanese churches, you've got Vietnamese churches, you've got Cambodian churches. All these churches are, are coming, and I find in a lot of those believers' lives there is that still sense of the, that spiritual side as you're talking about. So I think that listening to other voices in the midst of this, not just the, the same voices which you know tear up that that 
you know, sense of transcendence in the world is a really good, I think, discipline for us, you know, and as a church engaged as a body in this in this global moment. Yeah, um, Marcus, you kind of talk about about this global moment. Uh, I wanted to rewind a little bit because I thought something you did unique in the book uh, was talk about society in religious terms, um, having three key aspects: sacred boundaries. Purity and uh, sacred boundaries, purity and sacrifices, and so I was wondering if you could unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, this, this is a concept from Peter Lighthart, and he he looks at culture through uh, you know a, a religious sociology. Uh, and what I appreciate about that is we live in a secular world. There's this constant story of disbelief. Even in the Christian world, there's a whole much genre now of what I call deconversion, where you've got the person who is you know very serious in their faith and they're slowly de-sort of converting um, and so we're constantly pressured with that at all times and what what I appreciate about looking at the whole society as a religious society is you see that there's a different story going on that even communism which attempted to do away with God completely became this incredibly um, religious movement um, Stalin became a cult of personality as Khrushchev called it and even in the sort of new atheism or even in the sort of people who seem to be against, uh, you know, say Christianity the most, we, we see this sense of religious fervor at the moment. There's these concepts of who is in, who is out. Um, so who are the good people, who are the bad people? So many of the, the conversations around political correctness are really conversations about who is clean and who is unclean. Who can exist in our sacred space? Who needs to go outside our sacred space? So there's this religious typology, if you like, which when we step back, we see over uh, so much of our culture, this sense of yeah, purity of boundaries, which is interesting when you look at our world of borders. Um, who is the insider? Who is the outsider? Who is clean? Who is unclean? And how do we then sacrifice when those borders are basically, or those sacred lines are uh, transgressed? So let's talk about your tagline. Uh, I, I love the tagline of the book, Life in the Spirit in a Time of Upheaval. Will, will you, I, you know, there's this long kind of, um, I guess, this line between cessationist and continuist. And all, so, so talk a little bit about what, what you mean by life in the spirit in a time of upheaval. As I was writing the book, I really did a deep dive into all of the different things happening in the world, which I pretty much do all the time anyway, but <laughs> really, really went sort of deep into it. And there was a sense where I realized, you know, I was looking at so many different Twitter feeds and reading and, and watching the news, and I realized that I sort of had sunk into that world. And there was one day where I was working from home, and I had to go and pick up my daughter from school, and... I went down to her, what you guys call elementary school, and was just struck by the normal nature of it all. Um, there was this one moment where this young mother came out and she had a new baby. And around her quickly gathered all these other young mums. And what struck me, there were some who looked, you know, were very Western and they had tattoos and looked super cool. There was a Muslim lady there with a veil. And, and they just were all smiling around this new smiling baby. And I, I sat there waiting for my daughter and I looked at that and I thought, hang on, that's where we actually live. That's actually the real world. This is the world in which we inhabit. It's not this online world where everyone's screaming at each other. 
humans still live in this space and and it's this lived space and and I remember sitting there thinking and I did I actually thought God was speaking to me in that moment he said Mike that's the place the church has always been yeah that's the place the church is called to this is the place where in the New Testament that space that relational space in neighborhoods amongst normal people is where Christians throughout history have always made this incredible difference through living out of the spirit and that sense of the conversation of Christians are people who are citizens of heaven, that we are ambassadors for a future reality that God's going to do, that we've been saved by grace, so we can then follow this path where we live in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is so often understood as something, I think, which just gives us this sensate moment. Often it's how people understand it, and whilst that can happen, I believe... I believe that the Spirit is there wanting to constantly guide the church. So I guess what I was trying to do, and I you know, I didn't hugely go into this in the book, but is advocate for that spiritual understanding of the church and discipleship, uh, as, as you mentioned before, Matt, in this current contextual moment, but particularly in that lived reality um, that we actually do live our lives in. Because I think we as church we can feel overwhelmed by the digital media sphere because we're so far from it but living the Spirit in that lived space. Yeah, Mark, I just wanted to to make a comment and, and ask you uh, uh, to, to maybe talk about it a little bit more, but that I feel like that is the answer. You know, you provided the answer there. But one of the things that I saw in the book that was so helpful was when we're not living in the Spirit and when we're searching for meaning in, in fleshly realities, you give three pictures of the church, basically, that come from that space. And one is that, you know, the first is that um, if we are not uh, living that life, like you're talking about, in the Spirit, living in our neighborhoods, preaching the gospel, then in some sense uh, we can drift into a Christian non-space where we basically are kind of telling people how to, how to live great lives and, and um, you know, and, and find, find meaning through, I guess, like um, almost a prosperity in some sense, right? Uh, and then there's a second, second danger, uh, and that's that you'd become, um, in some sense, uh, uh, this reactionary church that finds its meaning in myths of the flesh, again, myth, myths of the world, either national myths or, uh, you know, racial myths or whatever. Um, and, and then the third is that um, you'd kind of askew those two uh, and find your meaning instead in, in, in more of a social justice um, uh, dynamic. And so I was wondering um, if you could tell us how, how do we as the church how do we stay on guard, uh, you know, against drifting into those three categories? I think, I think when, we, when we, you know, look at that New Testament viewpoint of spirit versus flesh, you know, Paul's constantly warning against it, you know, uh, falling into the flesh. And once I go, I can fall into that fleshly view of the world. I can, there's an element in me um, which is going to, fall to that which I can see, it's going to fall to that which is powerful, which is going to fall to that which gives me that sense of, of meaning aside from Christ. So once I realize that, I have to look at myself through that temptation, I have to lead my church in that temptation, that <coughs> the flesh is this constant temptation that's going to look different. So all those three things you just outlined that are in my book are all really ways the church can baptize and I don't mean that in the best sense, but baptize three views in the world which fall into, uh, you know, I think the first one, that sort of prosperity gospel, is really almost a baptizing of that very much sense 
of the sensual. I want to have this good life. I want to experience what's good. And we're going to equip you then to do that as a Christian. The second one is that sort of you know nationalism and meaning and reactive politics is, is, is another sense of regaining power. And then the third sort of one is another sense through the flesh of um, pushing the kingdom of God in the world but increasing ways which Christ is divorced from that reality and almost this secularized version of, of the church. And so all of those things, I think, are driven ultimately by the flesh. And so when I'm aware that I as an individual or as a leader have that propensity to constantly fall towards the flesh, I have to get up and I have to pray every day that I'm going I'm to lead that day, lead my family, lead my church, just in my interactions with people, how I think about everything. I'm praying to, to Jesus to help me walk in the Spirit every day. I'm not taking that as something I'm just going to take for granted, that I'm just going to exist in this day, that is very comfortable. I live in the world's most livable city, according to The Economist, in a very safe country down the bottom of the world. And that's enjoyable, but it brings a spiritual temptation that I cannot live by the Spirit. So I think a Christian, and an answer for this in this moment, is reorientating ourselves that we're going to fall for these temptations unless we're clinging to Christ and letting the Spirit guide us in this moment. Mark, that's so good. And I just, man, I, I want to thank you again for writing this book. Uh, I want to commend to the listeners um, any any of Mark's writing. And, and you've got uh, podcasts that uh, you can check out there for Red Church in Melbourne. And uh, Mark, again, thank you so much, brother. My pleasure. It's been great. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website, tbcresources.net. Starting in August, we'll have a discussion about education, what the Bible says about it, and some different yet faithful Christian views on education. If you like the show, make sure to hit the like button, and if you want to hear more, please subscribe. As Matt always says, see you this side of the Pecos on the other side of paradise.